Good morning. Great. I was going to say it's great to see you, but I can't see you. So, I'm, but I'm glad you're here just the same. Uh, it's been a, a real privilege uh, for me to be here this morning, to be honest with you. And uh, allow me, if you would, please, to just take a minute or two for a disclaimer. Um, this is an honor for me, honestly, to be behind the pulpit again and preaching. And uh, Pastor Joey was gracious enough. I don't know if he was just desperate to get on vacation or uh, what the issues were, but he invited me to speak both this morning and next Lord's Day, uh, if the Lord tarries. And so I look forward to that. But for me, honestly, it's, it's a complete honor. My name is John Spring, and uh, my beautiful wife, Ruth, uh, we've been married um, long time. Um, a little over 40 years, we started pastoral ministry the day after we got back from our honeymoon, and uh, we've been on our honeymoon ever since. And if you believe that, I've got some oceanfront property in Nebraska I'd like to sell you. And, uh, but we rejoice in over 40 years of, of ministry. Uh, to be honest with you, I never... I did not think that I'd ever have an opportunity to preach again. And so in God's providence, he led us to a Newtown Bible Church, to a young pastor, Pastor Joey Newton. And uh, I appreciate Joey and his, his ministry and Trish and their family. And pray for our pastor. I, this, this is a needed vacation for him. I hope it's a, a memorable time for them with his parents in the Carolinas. So um, we've been married a little over 41 years, been in pastoral ministry most of that time. And uh, I've pastored two churches, one in northern Maine called Mars Hill, place of the unknown God, and in Epsom, New Hampshire for a little over 20 years. So uh, glad to be be here. Um, Things have changed for us, for me, physically in the last couple of years, so uh, blindness has set in to a certain degree. Uh, I can't hear out of my left ear. Um, I've got severe neuropathy, so I have this little Cadillac to uh, help me walk. All of those things being equal. Somebody, a friend of mine said to me last week, two weeks ago, he said, you're just getting older. And I said, no, I'm, I'm just getting closer. And, uh, and I look forward to that. Uh, I'll fly away. You too. So, enough of that. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. We are springboarding ahead. I talked to Pastor Joey about this. And... and uh, Figured it'll be a little while before we get to chapter 5 anyway. Pastor said he thought he would finish the book of 1 Peter by the end of the year. I'm not a betting man. <laughs> but my wife will put up a 20 spot for... Anyway. We're in no hurry. Love is preaching. Love is diligence and study. 
And uh, I appreciate the opportunity to be a part of that. 1 Peter 5.8 is a very simple verse. You're probably familiar with it. Be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary the devil, like a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. If I were going to give this sermon a title, really, for this Lord's Day and next, it would be Hope for the Hurting. Say, man, didn't you just read 1 Peter 5, 8? It talks about Satan. Yeah, it does. But I want us to understand it in its context. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, the keys to a man's heart lie in the narrow chamber of suffering. If a man would master the art of ministering to people, he must first enter into the suffering or he will never unlock the depths of a man's soul. A.W. Tozer said essentially the same thing in different words. He said he is yet to see a man that God has greatly used that he hasn't first deeply hurt. Those things in mind. Let's bow in prayer. We're going to dive into this passage this morning. Gracious Father, thank you for your love, for your grace. We thank you, Lord, for your immeasurable mercy. You are uh, the God, Lord, who can shed mercy in our hearts because you're the God of mercy, the Father of mercy, the God of all comfort. And so we come to you with grateful hearts this morning. By your spirit, we ask, Father, that you would teach us. Help us, Lord, in this time together this morning to... Set our affections on the things that are above and not on the things of the earth. Lord, that you would help us in our thoughts, in our thinking, to be accurate, to be pleasing to you. I pray, Lord, that you'd get me out of the way. That anything else that would be a distraction would be removed so that we can clearly hear and clearly see and clearly understand the enlightening ministry of the Spirit of God to our hearts through your word. Thank you that you haven't left us without a witness, that you haven't left us to our own imaginations. And so, Father, it's our desire that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. We love you, Father, and ask your blessing on our time together as a family. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So it's a matter of Understanding those who are suffering and ministering to those so that they have hope. I'll give you the outline real simply. Kind of uh, alliterated. I just do that not because it's inspired, certainly not. But maybe it will help you to remember some of these things. There's the introduction, and I want to spend a little bit of time 
with that, we're jumping in in chapter 5, and uh, Pastor Joey did a great job in introducing us to Peter, the apostle. I want to spend a little more time developing that. It's hard to just jump in in chapter 5 without laying some, some foundation to it. Then there are some imperatives. Then there is an identity, an illustration, and some instruction. An introduction and four eyes. We will get through probably two of those main points this morning. Let me first start with the introduction. We have a writer and we have recipients. We're introduced to that in the chapter 1 and verse 1. Peter, an apostle, a sent one. The, uh, when Peter uses that term, it smacks of his uh, authoritative position as an apostle. But I think from Peter's perspective, especially as we're introduced to him in the Gospels, that Peter counted that more of a privilege and responsibility than just authority. When Peter refers to himself in chapter 1 and verse 1 as an apostle of Jesus Christ, the word apostle, as we were told by Pastor Joey, uh, means a sent one. But the emphasis is not so much with Peter being sent, but more, I think, on who sent him. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ, not of the church. There were those who could be referred to as apostles of the church, men like Timothy and Titus and Barnabas. But Peter was an apostle, a sent one of Jesus Christ. And frankly, I don't, I don't think Peter ever got over that. Because there's a second element that's important for us to understand. And that is, Peter not only was a sent one, an apostle... But he was also a shepherd in chapter 5 and verse 1. He refers to himself as a fellow elder. Now, that may not sound like a big deal, but it was to Peter. You understand that an elder, a bishop, a pastor, an overseer, all refer to the same person but from different viewpoints. In Acts 20, all three of the terms, pastor, uh, that is shepherd, and overseer and elder are used when Paul meets with the elders from Ephesus at Miletus. And he says to them, take heed to yourselves and to the flock of God over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers that you shepherd the flock of God. So all three terms are used there, referring to those elders from Ephesus. I think you have to appreciate Peter's position here. I think Peter writes this more from the standpoint of a pastor than he does even from an elder. Or, excuse me, uh, even as an apostle. His heart is burdened to, to those in 
Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. These were not just statistics. These were not just the, uh, the metrics of ministry. These were real people. People into whose eyes Peter would look. Some of them, Peter probably personally had led to the Lord and discipled and baptized. These were real people. It's important for us to get a hold of that. So as you read through the first epistle of Peter, and I hope you do it several times, you'll begin to appreciate the depth of burden that Peter has for these people to whom he is writing. But there's a third layer that I think sometimes, at least I miss at times, and that is this. Peter not only was a sent one and a shepherd, but he's a seasoned veteran of the second chance. Pastor, in his introduction to First Peter, reminded us that Peter was the disciple recognizable because he had a foot-shaped mouth. Do you remember that? I identify, I identify with Peter. In fact, sometimes I think the only time my foot's not in my mouth is when I'm changing feet. But when Peter writes, verse 3, he speaks about, of chapter 1, he speaks about God who is great in his mercy. We hear a lot about the doctrines of grace, and Peter certainly was a a thankful recipient of that. But Peter was also thankful that he was a recipient of God's great mercies, and we are too. You can't help but when you read this epistle, that somehow God in his marvelous providence and sovereignty has put together under the doctrines of inspiration and revelation this marvelous welding together, this blend of personality, of experiences, of failures and successes. And we have the truth conveyed through men like Peter, holy men of God, as we learned last week, that were carried along by the Holy Spirit so that what they spoke was really the, we call it inspiration, but it was the expiration of God, not that he canceled out, but it was breathed out so that what we have is exactly the truth that God wanted us to hear and understand. Real people. Peter, when he writes, you'll remember as we read through the Gospels just just in the last week of Passion, there in the upper room, we knew something was wrong when they got to the upper room and there was no slave there. But no one, none of the disciples volunteered their time to wash one another's feet. And they're laying there at the table reclining and they're discussing things. 
Anybody remember what they were discussing? Anybody? Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? And then without a word being spoken, the Lord Jesus gets up. He disrobes his outer garments. That would get attention, right? So Peter breaks the silence. You remember? Lord, not my feet. Peter, if uh, I don't wash your... Well, bathe... Bathe me completely. Once you've been bathed, you don't need to be bathed. It's, you know, I can't say anything right. It just doesn't come out right. I'll never, I'll never fail you, Peter. Before the rooster crows, you'll have denied me three times. Remember earlier in Matthew 16, who do men say that I am? A couple of answers were ventured, and then Peter pipes up louder than the others, and he says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I like what John MacArthur says. He says, at that point, Peter covered his mouth with his hand. Couldn't believe that that came out of his mouth. Jesus said to him, You've well said. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my Father who was in heaven. Peter's thinking, hmm, I like that. In the next paragraph, Jesus says to him, I'm going to die in three days. I'll be raised from the dead, resurrected. Peter says, no. It's a boisterous no. And one paragraph later, while he's doing the God speak, then Jesus says to him, get thee behind me, Satan. You think that was in Peter's mind when he wrote, be sober, be vigilant, vigilant for your adversary, the devil, like a roaring lion walking about, seeking whom he may devour. And then you'll remember Satan has already entered Judas. Betrayal takes place. They're out in the garden. But to prove his loyalty, they're in the garden. They're unarmed. The soldiers come. The crowd comes with all kinds of weaponry. Peter reaches forward and grabs the sword of Malchus, aims for his head, gets his ear As if to say, see? See how loyal I am to you? And Jesus picks up the ear. Puts it back on Malchus's head. Says to Peter, you're going to live by the sword. You're going to die by the sword. Man, I can't do anything right. And then you'll remember the trials. It's interesting, Luke the physician who's given the detail. When you read the Gospel of Luke, watch that. Luke is always plugging in facts and information. And one of the facts that Luke gives us is that while they were leading 
meeting with Jesus, Peter was outside by the fire, warming himself. And we won't time to go through all the scriptures. I hope you'll take time to look it up yourself this afternoon if you haven't this past week. But the slave girl said to Peter, you look familiar. You're one of them. Peter denies the Lord. To the point where he says, don't make me curse, don't make me swear. I don't even know the man. And when that was said, the rooster crowed. And Luke tells us, and that Jesus looked upon Peter. And Peter shrunk back. The same word, it means to come back into a fetal position. It's the same word that John used in 1 John, that we not be ashamed at his coming. No word was spoken, just the gaze. Then we jump ahead to resurrection morning. The ladies are at the tomb. By the way, women in that culture and by Jewish law were not allowed to testify in a court of law. Yet it was to women that the angels appeared. And they said, go get the disciples. And then they said this, and bring Peter. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul in his discourse on the resurrection says this, he first appeared to Peter. Did Peter earn that privilege of seeing Jesus first? No. Peter needed to see Jesus. Then you'll remember he's in the boat. I don't think it's a good scene. I don't think it's a happy reunion. John leans over to Peter and says, Oh my goodness. It's the Lord. Peter jumps over the other side. They look and there is the Lord Jesus on the shore. But what is he doing? He's by the fire cooking fish. The last time Peter saw Jesus is when he denied him. That was etched in Peter's memory like it would never exit. Fish, I think, would have reminded Peter about the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 men. It's in that context in John chapter 6 that he gives the instruction where we're told about the miracle, you know, five loaves, two fish. We heard about integer, integers yesterday at the men's fellowship. wasn't a whole number. You can't divide it without a fraction. But Jesus kept breaking the bread, kept multiplying the loaves and the fish. But John gives us the instruction, at least records the instruction, and he says, 
gather up the bread so that none be lost. They remember in early verses of chapter 6 of John that Jesus was testing Philip. He was the one that was crunching the numbers. He knew there was only 200 denarii worth, 200 days worth. We don't have enough to get bread for everybody. And Jesus says, you give them to eat. They were tired. It was the end of the day. And then to add insult to injury, Jesus says, not only do I want you to feed them, but I want you to break them up into groups of 50 and 100. And you can hear the disciples murmuring and mumbling, are you kidding me? I mean, we're volunteering. What does he want from us? We're tired. We need a break. And so they're murmuring and complaining and breaking up this bread. And they're feeding 5,000 men, not including women and children. And they gather up how many baskets? 12. That's an integer. You can divide 12 by 12. Each disciple had their own personal object lesson. Let me ask you, where was the bread? Jesus told them to get in the boat, go to the other side. Where do you think the bread was? In the boat. They were careful about obeying his instruction so that nothing be lost. And right at their feet was a basket full of bread. But Mark tells us that when they saw Jesus walk on, walking on the water, he would have walked right past them because they missed the miracle. All Peter could see was failure. So they come to shore, and, and now there's this dialogue between Jesus and Peter, and he says, Peter, do you love me more than these? Now there's some debate as to what exactly Jesus was referring to. Some think <clears throat> he was pointing, do you love me more than the other disciples? I don't really think that's the issue. I think what Peter was, what Jesus was doing was pointing the fishing apparatus. Because what, so, what happens so often when there's a spiritual failure, like there was on the behalf of Peter, not one but several, then you go back to the place of physical success to try to compensate. Peter went back to the fishing apparatus. And Jesus said to him, Peter, do you love me more than you love this? He said, Lord, you know I, you know I phileo you. He couldn't say I agape you. You know I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you, do you love me? Lord, you know all that you know that I love you. Feed my lambs. Third time. Peter, do you love me? Peter got angry. 
responded. Jesus said, feed my sheep. All Peter heard were questions. What Peter was missing was that he was being recommissioned. And so, resurrection morning comes. You remember that? John ran ahead and he stopped at the tomb and he beheld. But the scripture says that Peter ran right past John into the tomb, held the grave clothes in his hands, and he theoreoed. He theorized, trying to figure out what happened. Where'd he go? Peter's life was wrecked by misery, by failure. But Jesus came in great mercy and restored him. Now, 1 Peter, which is written 30 plus years after those events. Peter's been in the saddle as an apostle, as an elder. All of those years. And he writes with a care and a broken heart. One who himself had endured a lot of suffering for the the name and cause of Christ. And tradition tells us, history tells us, that when Peter died, he was crucified upside down because he didn't think even to be crucified right side up that he was worthy in that matter. He never got over the thrill of God's mercy. And when he writes to those in the provinces which now make up Turkey, it's with a broken heart. It's with a tender heart. He's a man who is familiar with suffering. So he was a sent one, a shepherd, and a seasoned veteran. Not only with failure, but with restoration. And he writes to believers, and this is important, please just make a note of it. He is writing to believers who are burdened, who are being overcome, who are being persecuted. But along with the persecution, along with the physical elements they're they're going through, is something that we don't give a lot of attention to. And that is the emotional trauma. Well, we may not be being sewn up in animal skins and thrown into a den of starving dogs or lions. But along with the physical issue are the emotional issues, the affliction of having to watch people that you love removed from you, the anxiety of emptiness. I want you to think about those as we work our way through. Um, Because I can't even tell you where we are in the notes. Can't read them anyway. So let's let's look first of all at these uh, imperatives. There are two of them. Be sober, be vigilant. 
but they're really, they're so similar, there's so much overlap that it's, they could almost be considered as just one imperative, one command that's compound. Be sober, be vigilant. Peter likes that word sober. He's used it a couple of places. He's used it in chapter 1 and verse 13. He's used it in chapter 4. The, the idea of being sober, it's kind of a wooden translation. It's ex, extreme opposite would be drunk, a drunkenness. But I don't think that's what Peter is using it here. They're, he's not accusing these beleaguered and suffering believers as being drunkards. But rather what he is saying, and this is not by way of command as much as it is by way of, way of pleading. He's saying, the word literally means well-ordered, to think well-ordered. You remember Proverbs says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So what Peter is saying is this, I want you to be accurate in your thinking. Think accurately. Be accurate. Then he says, be aware. Be vigilant. Paul uses the same term, expression, in Ephesians 5 with regard to walking circumspectly. It, it's kind of a, it's, it's a military term. It has the idea, uh, kind of like we think of a, a, an armored tank and the turret that rotates 360 degrees. That's the idea of walking circumspectly, of not being unwise but wise, what the will of the Lord is. Now, there's a constant admonition in the New Testament particularly, but all throughout the scripture, about thinking accurately, about thinking right, about being wise. I was talking to Joel yesterday, Joel yesterday, about baseball, and, and uh, I, I, really, I'm a simple guy. I really am. And we were just discussing how baseball, professional baseball, has become so much of the analytics that it, you've got to be a mathematician to understand baseball. To me, it just takes all the fun out of being a nine-year-old and watching baseball. You know, all the statistics, the metrics about how fast baseball leaves the bat, enters the stands. To me, it's just a home run. It's not a mathematical calculation. But the, the marvel is that we think a person's wise because of the breadth of knowledge. But the scripture says the wise person is not measured by the breadth of his knowledge, but by the depth of his heart. Paul, as advanced and intellectual and academic as he was, said to the Corinthians that when I came among you, I knew nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Thinking accurately. Thinking in biblical category. Paul says to the Galatians, I'm in labor all over again until Christ is formed in you. Thinking according to the standard of Scripture. Wisdom is not measured by the amount of syllabi you have on your bookcase. 
but how much of the word of God you've hidden in your heart. So that you think in biblical category, you live in accordance with what you think. And you think in accordance to the word of God. Be sober. Be vigilant. Think in biblical category. And then he says this, and there's a direct connection here. Not only are there these imperatives, but there's an identity. Why? Why do I need to think in biblical category, Peter? Because your adversary, the devil, there's an identity there. In English grammar, that uh, part of speech is called an appositive. A-P positive. It's really kind of a nominative form, but I want you to get this. It's like saying, my wife, Ruth. Wife and Ruth refer to the same person. But it's almost in an adjectival, if I could use that expression, it's almost in an adjectival form because it identifies the relationship that I have with my wife, Ruth. She's my wife. The relationship we have with the devil is that he is our adversary. He is our enemy. Do you get that? Now, let me back up for just a minute. I don't think it's Peter's intention or purpose at this stage of the game. He's, he's really kind, kind of come to the end of what he wanted to say, and it's just like the typical pastor, uh, oh yeah, one more thing, just one more, uh, and one more thing extends for almost an entire chapter. So it's, by the way, uh, not only are you going to endure all of this suffering, this suffering is for a short time, it's for the trying of your faith, Uh, don't consider it a strange thing that you're going through. Oh, and and by the way, Satan's going to try to devour you right in the middle of all your affliction, too. It's, it's, I don't want to say it's a passing thought, but Peter's intention here is not to do a dissertation on demonology, angels elect and fallen, but a reminder that you're in a battle. You're, we are in the war. And the enemy's intention is not to afflict you and to be a thorn in your flesh, but to absolutely devour you. Down and dirty. It's really strong language uh, that, that Peter uses here. And then he'll go on. Now, the word adversary here has to do with an accuser. Revelation, I think it's Revelation 12, he refers to Satan as being the accuser of the brethren. Apollyon, Abaddon, in Revelation chapter 9, means destroyer. That's the relationship that we have with Satan in terms of his desire for us. 
It is Satan's desire to destroy us. It's a pretty ravaged term that's used there. And I don't want to go into all... There are a lot of names for Satan. You can look at Isaiah chapter 14, 12 to 14. You can look at Ezekiel chapter 28. A lot of background about it. The book of Revelation is replete with Satan's activity during the tribulation period and so on. But he just drops the name here. It's a legal term. It's taken out of the courtroom. Allow me to digress for just a second here. Maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you've been here several mornings. You've heard the word of God preached. You understand the claims of the cross. But you've never come to a place where you've really embraced the truth of the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, if our gospel is hid, it is hid to them who are lost in whom the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of them that which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ should shine unto them. Satan blinds the minds of an unbeliever. But he doesn't blind God's eyes. Paul will say in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve with his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity in Christ. The simplicity that's in Christ. You know what Satan's ploy is? He doesn't show up in the the red outfit with horns and a pitchfork. In fact, Satan doesn't even shout. We hear these days about people binding Satan. Satan loves it. But Paul says, I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds might be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 6, we're not ignorant of the devil's devices. One of his devices is to complicate things. Beloved, understand, you're here this morning without Jesus Christ. It is a simple thing. It involves two elements, repentance and faith. Neither of which can you manufacture. Those are granted gifts from God. It's all about Jesus Christ working, but you understand that the word of God says, God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. There are two elements that are necessary, repentance and faith. They're simple concepts. Simple concepts that even a child could understand. Good friends of ours now on this side of the cross 
Joe and Francia Rennie. Joe was, came to a men's fellowship, had been attending church. He came to a men's fellowship at, at, our, at our church in New Hampshire. And uh, that night at the men's fellowship, Joe trusted Christ as a savior. Created a lot of problems in the home. Francia is from Bogota, Colombia. Devout Catholic. She started coming to church. Joe got saved. He was working at a restaurant. And uh, as the manager of the restaurant, he was pilfering a lot of the food. Bringing it home. He came home from the men's fellowship that night. And he told Francia that he had trusted Christ as a savior. And there would be no more stealing of food. And she went off into orbit. She started coming to church because she found out that the pastor's wife is Puerto Rican. She speaks Spanish. And so Francia came to start coming to church. And uh, not only did she come to church, she'd come to the adult Sunday school. And I was teaching the Sunday school class and I would make a statement and she wouldn't even put up her hand. She'd say, how do you know that? And we'd open the scriptures and try to answer her questions according to the scriptures. Well, some weeks went by. And one Sunday afternoon, we were just sitting down for dinner at home. And the phone rang, and it was Francia. And uh, I said, Francia, what can I do for you? How can I help you? I just called to apologize. You called to apologize for what? I want to apologize for not getting saved this morning. Never, never got a phone call like that before. Haven't got one like that since. She was angry because Joe was so full of joy. And she said, I've been a Catholic all my life. I go to confession every Saturday night. And I don't understand why he's so happy and I'm not. And I said, well, the scripture says that there needs to be repentance and there needs to be faith. Well, I go to confession every Saturday night. Well, I said, well, Francia, there's a difference between confession and repentance. What do you mean? I said, let's say that you're working in a convenience store, and I walk in, and I say, uh, Francia, I'm going to buy this newspaper, but I'd like a pack of that trident up, up on the wall. And you turn around, and you reach for that pack of gum, but I notice that you left a $10 bill on the register. So while you turned around and got that pack of gum, I took that $10 bill and put it in my pocket. She said, that's not right. I said, I know. And so I get home, and I call you up, and I say, Francie, you know, when you turn around to get the gum and so on, I said, there was a $10 bill on the register, and I took that $10 bill, and I put it in my pocket. And I just called to tell you that I'm sorry for taking that money. 
and I want to confess that to you. I said, would that be enough for you? She said, no. I said, what would you expect? She said, I would expect you to return the $10. I said, that's repentance. It's a turning around. It's a changing of your mind that changes your behavior. You may be here this morning, you may be thinking there are several reasons why you came to church. I'll tell you there's one reason why you came to church. You're here by divine appointment. God saw what you were doing last night on the computer. God saw what you were doing last night in that car. God has noticed what you've been doing on your mileage charts. You see, Jesus, the first words out of the mouth of Jesus when he came incarnate was, except ye repent, ye shall likewise perish. There is repentance and there is faith. The writer of Hebrews says, but without faith it is impossible to please God for he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. First Corinthians 5.21 puts it in very simple language. There are two things that are required. Forgiveness of sins, but that's not enough. It's not enough for God to forgive you of your sins. You have to have perfect righteousness. And the truth of the matter is, you don't have it. None of us do. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 21, it says, For he made him, the Father made Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us in our place. Why? In order that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. How does one have assurance of eternal life? Not by works of righteousness, which we have have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. By simple faith, by genuine repentance, turning from sin, saying, Lord, I'm, I'm all done. I let go of the sin and I embrace Jesus Christ. Forsaking sin, following Christ. That's eternal life. Satan is an accuser. Like the parable of the sower, Satan is the one that will try to steal away the seed. Maybe you're a believer here this morning. And like Peter, you've tasted failure. You've overstepped the bounds of grace. You feel like you've fallen short of mercy. And Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And Satan says, 
Not only once, but you've done that repeatedly. There's just no place for you. There's, and Satan will try to keep reminding you of your failure. Colossians chapter 2 says it this way. Um, you see what? Satan grabs you by the arm and he wants to bring up those things of your failures. No self-help book is going to help you with that. But you can take take him to the cross. Colossians chapter 2 verse 14 says this. And being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh. You hath he quickened that is made alive. You hath he quickened together with him, with Christ. Having forgiven you all of your trespasses. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, he took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And you're, you're able to say as a believer in Jesus Christ, yes, I did fail. Yes, I did commit that sin. But I want to show you something. See that cross? Look carefully. Not just at the nail-pierced hands and the feet. But there's something nailed above his head. Those are the handwriting of ordinances that was against me. Every sin that I've ever committed, am committing, and will commit, he took out of the way, nailing it his cross. Remember I told you that our adversary, it's a term that's taken out of the court, out of the courtroom. You see, what Jesus did, God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin in order that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That sin he took out of the way, nailing it to his cross. He didn't dismiss the charges. He didn't call it a mistrial. Jesus Christ took my place, took your place. The condemnation, the sentence, the plead guilty stuck. And the judgment was made and the execution 
was made. And all of the righteous judgment and anger of God, his wrath for that, for my disobedience and for your disobedience was poured out on the cross. So I claim no righteousness, Satan. See, the Bible says, I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ has died in vain. But I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. I am clean, I am clear, and to accuse me again is double jeopardy, and it's not allowed in God's court. We are free. We can't pride ourselves on some kind of pseudo-humility to say, well, I know God's forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. Who do you think you are? Who do I think I am? Am I greater than God? That God can forgive me, but I can't forgive myself? What a haughty statement. That's not a statement of humility. That's a statement of a lack of faith. Why? I'm clean. I'm clear. Because Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it. He washed it white as snow. So, here's what it comes down to. Satan may question our sincerity, our genuineness, our history, our track record, and try to point out our sin. But Satan, sir, I have a question for you. What sin?
Father in heaven, how do we adequately say thanks to you for what you've done on the cross in your son? Making him who knew no sin to be sin for us in order that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Loving Father, I pray if there is even one here this morning who is wrestling with their sin to release it and to embrace the cross, that you would draw them even right now. For those of us who know you, maybe we've known you for a long time and we've been sidelined because of our own disobedience. May we understand today that there is a a depth and a width of mercy that you extend to us. We come. We come running, Father. Thank you for your grace and mercy. I pray your blessing, Lord, upon this body of believers that you would strengthen us for the warfare, equip us for the journey, that we would fix our eyes on you, the author and finisher of our faith. Thank you for this time around your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.